Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, July 18th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Russia's bridge to Crimea is attacked for a second time. Floods kill at least 40 in South Korea. Tunisia and the EU finalize a deal on migration. China's economy misses forecasts. Iran's morality police resume headscarf patrols. The UN Security Council is set to hold its first talks on AI risks. Musk says Twitter has lost nearly half its advertising revenue. Tucker Carlson lands his first ad deal. Ron DeSantis fires several staffers. And Alcaraz beats Djokovic at Wimbledon. In our top story, a Russian bridge to Crimea again has been attacked, killing two. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, The Guardian, and TASS. The Kerch Bridge linking Russia to Crimea was attacked again in the early hours of Monday, killing a couple and injuring their daughter. The 12-mile or 19-kilometer bridge was first attacked last October when a truck packed with explosives brought down part of the structure, closing it for weeks while repairs were undertaken. Ukraine didn't claim responsibility at the time of the attack, but last month, Hanna Maliar, Ukraine's deputy defense minister, acknowledged that Ukraine was to blame. Monday's attack, coming at around 3 a.m. local time, was carried out using underwater drones, according to reports. Ukrainian media, citing unnamed sources, suggested that Ukraine's security and intelligence service, alongside its navy, were responsible. Meanwhile, in a post on Telegram, Artem Degtyrenko, a spokesman for Ukraine's security service, tacitly acknowledged that the agency had a hand to play, saying that it would reveal details of how the bang was organized after Ukraine eventually wins the war. Russian officials said on Monday that traffic across the bridge has been suspended, instructing those that wish to reach Crimea to travel via alternate road routes via Russia's four new regions, parts of Ukraine that Russia claimed to have annexed last year. The officials added that the deceased couple had been traveling to Crimea from Russia's Belgorod region, stating that their daughter suffered head injuries that left her in a hospital with a severe condition. Elsewhere, the Kremlin announced on Monday that the UN-backed grain deal between Russia and Ukraine, set to expire on July 17th unless extended, is no longer in effect, given that Moscow has not seen the fulfillment of parts of the deal. It added that the move was not influenced by what it described as the latest terror attack from Ukraine saying that the decision not to extend the grain deal had already been decided. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here's our first spin, the pro-Russia narrative from TASS. This strike on Kerch Bridge is the latest demonstration of the terror tactics adopted by Kyiv. But, of course, nothing in Ukraine happens without the knowledge and approval of U.S. and British intelligence agencies. These Western powers bear equal responsibility. The Guardian brings us the pro-Ukraine narrative. How can Russia claim this was an act of terrorism when they have been bombing Ukrainian cities and towns every week for the last 18 months? Every week they have killed civilians and destroyed civilian infrastructure. This was a justified attack that weakens Russia's supply lines in the south of Ukraine. And from time to time we have statistics-based nerd narratives coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 60% chance that the Crimean Bridge will be knocked out for seven days before 2024. I lived in the Bay Area, San Francisco for a, a number of years, and obviously the fame, you know, Bay Bridge, Golden Gate Bridge, all that. 
And those bridges have to be built to a different standard because of the earthquakes that happen in the Bay Area, you know, pretty frequently. I wonder if living in Ukraine, you know, this bridge has to be built to a different standard, at least going forward, right? Like needs to be pretty sturdy. I would think so. Yeah. Hurricane standards. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You you picked up what I was putting down. Exactly. Yeah. I I think those hurricane standards are in quotes, right? Right. Hurricane standards. Yes. Yes. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Floods in South Korea kill at least 40. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Korea Herald, BBC News, Al Jazeera, Korea Times, the Japan Times and The Guardian. On Monday, South Korean authorities reported that at least 40 people had been killed and over 10,000 residents were displaced after a weekend of heavy rain caused devastating floods and landslides across the country. The deceased include 13 corpses recovered from a flood-hit 685-meter or 2,200-foot underground tunnel in the central city of Cheonju. The death toll may rise as rescuers continue to retrieve trapped travelers. Over a dozen vehicles, including a bus, were submerged in the underpass on Saturday when the nearby Miho River's bank burst, reportedly filling the tunnel in as little as two or three minutes. The Chungbuk Provincial Police Agency is expected to probe the fatal flooding to examine why the tunnel wasn't preemptively closed to traffic despite prior flood warnings for the river. Meanwhile, President Yoon Suk-yul called for extraordinary determination to improve the country's preparedness and response as extreme weather from climate change becomes commonplace. South Korea has been hit by extreme rainfall since July 9th, mostly in its central and southern regions, which are estimated to receive an additional 100 to 200 millimeters of rain by Tuesday night. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. Narrative A is courtesy of The Conversation, and it is our first spin. Increasingly severe rainstorms and flooding are linked to global warming and climate change as warmer weather allows air to retain more water vapor, which is why we must implement policies to cool the global temperature to save lives and billions of dollars in damage. And Competitive Enterprise Institute brings us narrative B. Modern-day doomsayers have predicted climate and environmental disasters for decades, but what we are seeing now are natural cycles. From the next ice age to epic floods, none of the apocalyptic predictions have come true so far. Why would this time be any different? The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's an 85% chance that there will be at least 2 degrees Celsius of global warming by the year 2100. Whenever I drive in a tunnel, you know, the Lincoln Tunnel or right. Holland Tunnel going to New York City or in other places, it always does cross my mind like, geez, I wouldn't want to be trapped under here. This oh, is yeah. long, you know. <laughs> right. And, 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 and that's one of those things where you're just people like to be in control. Like if something bad happens, it's because I made a mistake or if something good happens because I did something good. When you're in a tunnel like that, you are leaving it in, you know, a higher power's hands. Even if your car breaks down. I think about what would it be like to walk out of here, even if it wasn't flooded or or destroyed or something. Absolutely. You learned that back in your panhandling days, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You you can judge distances on foot pretty well. As I call it in the business. Yeah. (laughs) Tunisia and the EU finalize a migration pact. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Politico, Africa News, You're Active, DW, and Al Monitor. The European Union and Tunisia signed a Memorandum of Understanding Sunday for a strategic and comprehensive partnership 
aimed at countering irregular migration and enhancing economic collaboration. As part of the deal, the EU will provide cash to Tunisia in exchange for strengthening border controls. Sunday's EU statement did not provide any details of the agreement. However, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said last month that the EU was ready to provide Tunisia with more than 1 billion euros, or 1.1 billion US dollars. Through this partnership, the EU aims to contribute to the development of Tunisia via stability, trade, and investment, green energy transition, people-to-people -people links, and migration and mobility. The deal has come under scrutiny due to the Tunisian government's treatment of migrants. Since February, President Kais Saeed accused hordes of migrants from these countries of a plot to change the country's demographic composition. Migrants from Tunisia have increased significantly in numbers in recent months. The Italian research institute ISPI reported about 6,500 arrived in Italy last week alone. On Friday, Italy said that over 75,000 migrants had arrived by boat in 2023 to date, more than double the almost 32,000 who arrived during the same period last year. Thanks, Eric. Middle East Monitor brings us the pro-establishment narrative. A strategic pact between the EU and Tunisia is necessary in order to halt irregular migration from Africa. The need to crack down on criminal networks of smugglers and traffickers is paramount. The EU will work hand-in-hand -hand with Tunisia on anti-smuggling and search-and-rescue operations. This vital Europe-North African partnership will save lives. The establishment critical narrative comes from Al Jazeera. Human rights groups have rightly expressed concern that the EU is providing financial support to President Saeed's increasingly authoritarian government. The EU and Italy are turning a blind eye to Tunisia's repressive treatment of migrants and asylum seekers who face abuse at the hands of security forces, including police and National Guard members at sea. The deal means that migrants will be stranded in Tunisia and become more desperate, taking even bigger risks to reach Europe. Eric, are you familiar with like the concept of sowing salt into the earth so that nothing else will grow? Have you ever hear about that before? Yes, absolutely. I do yeah, a lot well, of that. I do a lot of that and I burn a lot of bridges. <laughs> yeah, <you did. laughs> don't burn don't burn any ones that I sell. All right. Those, those, don't 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 sour the deal. All right. <laughs> okay. China's second quarter economy grew slower than expected. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Sabah, Business Insider, TradingEconomics.com, Al Jazeera, and CNBC. China's economy grew more slowly than expected in the second quarter as youth unemployment hit a record high of 21.3%. Official data released Monday says that gross domestic product expanded by 6.3% year-on-year, up 0.8% during the second quarter compared with the previous quarter. China's GDP figure contrasts with 2022 when Beijing enacted, quote, zero COVID policies and brought economic activity to a standstill. Economists predicted that China's economy would grow by greater than 7% this year. The disappointing GDP notwithstanding, China's Statistics Bureau said its economy showed good momentum of recovery in the first half year. The PRC's retail sales grew 3.1% in June from a year ago, a plummet from May's 12.7% growth. The government's growth target is 5%, following a 3% expansion last year. The global recession has caused some economists to raise the risk of China missing its target for 2023, thus pressuring the government to launch a stimulus package, which some Beijing policymakers have been cautious of. However, China's top economic policymakers are expected to roll out stimulus steps, including funding major infrastructure projects, more aid for consumers and private firms, and changes to property regulations. 
expectations are high for the Politburo meeting later this month when top leaders could unveil the next steps. Thank you, Scott, for presenting those facts. The first spin is coming from Xinhuanet and its Narrative A. Despite external challenges, China's economy has performed remarkably well this year. It has grown significantly faster than that of the world's major developed economies, demonstrating the strong resilience of its economic development. China has shaken off the impact of the epidemic and has returned to normal growth. China's economy remains strong, as indicated by numerous economic indicators. And Narrative B comes from Daily Sabah. China's economy grew at a much slower pace than forecast in Q2, and its recovery from its recent lockdown is slower than anticipated. The world is looking at what measures of stimuli China's Politburo will take later this month to address the many problems ahead. The record youth jobless rate and downtrending property sector are real causes for concern. And we have a nerd opinion coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 50% chance that China's GDP will be at least 31.17 trillion U.S. dollars at the end of 2025. News coming from Iran as they resume their dress code patrols. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Al Jazeera, BBC News, Guardian, The Telegraph, and Washington Post. Iran's state-run Fars news agency reported on Sunday that vehicle and foot patrols are once again operating across the country to ensure women comply with the strict Islamic dress code. Officers have been tasked with warning women outside the norm to adjust headscarves or hijabs and to wear long, loose-fitting clothing, sending into the judicial system those who violate the rules. This comes 10 months after nationwide protests rocked the country in response to the death of the 22-year-old Kurdish woman Masa Amini while in the custody of Guidance Patrol for allegedly incorrectly wearing her headscarf. While police vans were taken off the streets amid the unrest, Tehran has used closed-circuit TV cameras to scan the faces of those not wearing the hijab and introduced new laws to levy fines or close shops and cafes serving women breaking the norms, an estimated 10% of Iranian women, as soon as protests subsided. The human rights activists in Iran NGO reported that one woman was sentenced to two years in jail and a two-year travel ban, while also being ordered to undertake health checks due to her behavior in the first sentence that relied on evidence from the cameras. All Iranian women have been required to wear a headscarf in public since 1983, four years into the Islamic Revolution that conducted clerics to power, but enforcement of the dress code has fluctuated since it was set up during the 1990s. All right, an anti-Iran narrative comes from Iran Wire. There's little doubt that the Iranian regime was irrational and completely out of touch with society, yet relaunching patrols to enforce the dress code is a terrible measure, even for Tehran's leadership. This move can only wreak havoc in the country and reignite women-led anti-government protests. And the pro-Iran narrative comes from Press TV. While enemies of Iran attempt to create cracks in the nation through warfare against the Islamic headscarf, Iranian women and girls will not give up their Muslim identity. The hijab is an unquestionable religious necessity and a practical principle of a nation that bolsters the traditional family. This policy must be protected and upheld. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by May of 2036. The UN Security Council to hold its first talks on AI risks. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by The Guardian, iNews, Associated Press, Al Jazeera, HT Tech, and Reuters. On Tuesday, the United Nations Security Council will hold its first ever meeting to discuss the potential threats that artificial intelligence poses to global peace and security. The development comes after UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres last month 
called for the creation of an international AI watchdog to take the warnings of generative AI being an existential threat to humanity seriously. Tuesday's meeting, to be chaired by UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, is expected to feature briefings from international AI experts as well as from Guterres, who has also announced plans to create an AI advisory board in September. The UK's ambassador to the UN, Barbara Woodward, said the meeting would be the centerpiece of the UK Security Council presidency, stressing the UK wished to promote a multilateral approach to the huge opportunities and risks of AI. The UK, which will also host an AI summit later this year for like-minded countries and its leaders, is expected to add AI to its published list of national threats on the National Risk Register this week. According to a recent survey, more than a quarter of participating Britons said they had used generative AI, while one in 10 respondents admitted to using an AI at least once per day. Thanks, Scott, for the facts. Narrative A comes from The Guardian. AI systems with abilities exceeding the limits of human capacity are on the horizon. If done at the right pace and with the right regulation, they could offer unprecedented solutions to humanity. But they could also destroy humanity unless governments stop the dangerous AI development race between big tech. And Narrative B comes from the National Review. Artificial intelligence experts continue to overblow the technology's risk and engage in unrealistic fear-mongering. Although current technology is impressive, artificial general intelligence, the true concern, is still a long way off. By consistently releasing warnings about its far-fetched consequences, tech experts ignore the economic benefits AI promises. And the Metaculous Prediction community is offering their narrative as well. They say there's an 85% chance that we will see an event precipitated by AI malfunction that causes at least 100 deaths or at least $1 billion in economic damage before the year 2032. A recent report coming from Elon Musk saying that Twitter ad revenue is down 50% since the takeover. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, BBC News, Fox News, Daily Mail, and Reuters. Twitter owner Elon Musk revealed that the company has seen a nearly 50% decrease in advertising revenue since Musk bought the platform for $44 billion last October. He said in a tweet, quote, We are still negative cash flow due to approximately 50% drop in advertising revenue plus heavy debt load. Need to reach positive cash flow before we have the luxury of anything else. The Tesla CEO made sweeping changes to Twitter after buying the platform, firing half of the company's 7,500 employees in cost-cutting measures and cutting cloud service bills as he looks to pay off the $13 billion in debt by the end of the month. Fleeing advertisers left Twitter with $1.5 billion in annual interest payments. In April, Musk said Twitter's sweeping layoffs were a, quote, painful necessity to revive the company reeling from a $3 billion negative cash flow situation when he bought it. Musk also said in April that he believed Twitter would have a positive cash flow by the third quarter, with revenue reportedly down 59%, or $200 million, between April 1st and the first week of May year over year. CNN also reported that only 43% of Twitter's top pre-Musk advertisers remained on the platform. Twitter's expected 2023 revenue is $3 billion, down from $5.1 billion in 2021. And advertisers are believed to be leaving the app due to Musk's pro-free speech policy of relaxing content moderation rules. Musk has tried generating subscription-based revenue to offset the costs in addition to the layoffs. In the face of the financial challenges and new competition from Meta's new Twitter-like app Threads, Musk stepped down as CEO and hired the NBC Universal executive Linda Yaccarino. 
While Musk is taking most of the heat, rival executive Megana Dar says Twitter was experiencing steady declining revenue well before Musk took over. The left narrative spin on this story comes from Vox. Since buying the platform, Elon Musk has made a mockery of Twitter, driving away advertisers for many reasons. First, companies don't want to be associated with a company that is at best indifferent to and at worst complicit in the promotion of hate speech that targets marginalized groups. In addition to the moral qualms with Musk's free-for-all vision of Twitter, advertisers are rightly worried. The right narrative comes from the Mises Institute. The powerful woke cartel is striking back against Elon Musk, who dares to bring some semblance of free speech back into American life. The path to restoring free speech was never going to be easy, and Musk may have to play a little ball with the establishment. But the fight for this right remains as important as ever. Musk's efforts have been honorable. And the nerd narrative comes from the Metaculous community once again. This time they predict there's a 60% chance that Twitter's average monetizable daily users will be higher in 2023 than in 2022. Tucker Carlson lands his first ad deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, the Postmillennial, CNBC, and Business Insider. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson has reportedly struck a seven-figure ad deal with Public Square, an online marketplace for companies with conservative values, for his new show on Twitter. Carlson and his former college roommate, Neil Patel, are reportedly looking to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to create a new media company with its own website, mobile app, and subscription service. Carlson's Twitter show, the first episode of which received over 120 million viewers, and the latest, where he interviewed Andrew Tate with nearly 75 million views, allow users to watch short-form videos for free. His new company will reportedly enable subscribers to gain access to exclusive content. Carlson, who brought in $77.5 million in ad revenue for Fox in 2022, is now one of Twitter's highest-profile creators. The reports of the deal come after Twitter launched an ad revenue-sharing program for creators last week. In April, Carlson and Fox News parted ways after the network paid $787.5 million to settle a lawsuit with Dominion Voting Systems for airing election-rigging claims regarding the 2020 election. Former Fox News hosts Megyn Kelly and Bill O'Reilly have also signed deals with the separate company Red Seat Ventures, a firm that reportedly helped the journalists create their own media businesses. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. The pro-establishment narrative comes from Mediaite. Not only has Carlson become more outlandish in his narrative since leaving Fox, but he's further distanced himself from his former friends in the GOP and thus the majority of average Republican voters. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie proved this briefly over the weekend by pointing out his flawed views on the Ukraine war. The Americans still care about fighting for democracy at home and abroad. But Carlson's extremist and increasingly niche rhetoric flies against a rules-based order of democratic nations. And PJ Media brings us the establishment critical narrative. Why would a man fired from CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News still be America's most popular political pundit? It might be because he continues his refusal to stop telling the truth. While the mainstream media and their friends in the elitist town of Washington on both sides of the aisle want to silence his views, the Americans, and thankfully a select few investors, are willing to put their money where their mouths are and fight to keep free speech alive. Carlson continues to fight the good fight against the powerful. According to recent reports, the DeSantis campaign has fired around 10 staffers. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, USA Today, NBC, and The Guardian. 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's campaign for the Republican presidential nomination has reportedly fired just under 10 staffers in the past week. This comes as the DeSantis campaign's fundraising filing with the Federal Election Commission has shown that, in the first few weeks after the governor's announcement, the campaign spent nearly $8 million of the $20 million it raised in the second quarter. The filing shows that the campaign, which employed 92 people at one point during the second quarter, had $12.2 million in cash on hand at the end of June, but $3 million of that is allocated toward the general election. More than two-thirds of DeSantis's funds, around $14 million, were contributed by donors who have already reached the legal maximum for individuals, meaning they can't donate to DeSantis again in the 2024 election cycle. Polls show DeSantis second to former President Donald Trump. A recent Florida Atlantic University poll reported Trump with a 20-point lead in Florida. All right, thanks for that update. Unsurprisingly, we have some diametrically opposed political views here. We have a Democratic narrative from the New York Times. For someone who was supposed to challenge Trump, DeSantis is struggling, and these firings are just the latest ominous sign that this campaign is going nowhere. Past candidates have undergone similar staff shakeups, but none made changes so early in the race. Democrats may not have the luxury of a destructive head-to-head GOP duel between DeSantis and Trump. Daily Signal brings us the Republican narrative. Don't count out DeSantis yet. He's just beginning to find his footing on the national stage and still has plenty of cash to power his run. Once he begins appealing to independents and undecided voters, he could very likely challenge Trump in a robust way. And the pro-Trump narrative comes from the New York Post. DeSantis is no match for Trump. And the morning consult poll shows Trump leading DeSantis 56% to 17%. That's concrete proof that the Florida governor is going nowhere fast. DeSantis was warned about hiring too many people too soon, but he didn't listen. Now he's cutting staff when he should be making a run at the frontrunner. And the Metaculous Prediction community has been very busy with today's podcast. They once again have their narrative for this story, saying there's a 14% chance that prediction markets will say Ron DeSantis is the most likely Republican nominee for president on January 1st, 2024. And news from Wimbledon, Alcaraz beats Djokovic in an epic final. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CBS, PBS NewsHour, The Economic Times, CNN, BBC News, and The Guardian. Carlos Alcaraz, the world number one men's tennis player, defeated the seven-time and reigning Wimbledon champion Novak Djokovic in a five-set final to win his first Wimbledon title on Sunday. Despite losing the first set 1-6, the 20-year-old Spaniard bounced back to win the second set in a tiebreaker and the third set 6-1. Djokovic claimed the fourth set 6-3, but Alcaraz collected his second Grand Slam title by winning the final set 6-4. Sunday's loss ends Djokovic's four-time consecutive winning streak at the All-England Club and makes Alcaraz the third youngest player to win the Wimbledon men's singles title. Alcarez's victory also makes him the first men's Wimbledon champion outside of the big three, Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, since 2002. Alcarez, who won his first Grand Slam trophy last year at the U.S. Open, has also become the first player to beat Djokovic on center court in a decade. Sunday's showdown, which featured the largest age gap between finalists in any men's slam since 1974, was the record-breaking 35th Grand Slam final for the 23-time Grand Slam winner, Djokovic. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from El Pais. After two decades of Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal dominating the men's tennis circuit, this tournament marks the conclusion of that golden age, a new era which will see Medvedev, Tsitsipas, and Zverev challenge the rising new generation, led by Alcaraz, Rune, and Sinner has now begun. Okay, Narrative B comes from Indian Express. 
While the men's tennis circuit is seeing the rise of promising young players, it doesn't mean the once-dominant generation of players is finished. The rise of Alcaraz marks the beginning of an on-court rivalry with the unmatched 23 Grand Slam winner Djokovic. Tennis may be at a turning point, but it's yet to be seen whether or not Alcaraz's win is an isolated incident of underdog success. One final nerd narrative for today's podcast coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 50% chance that the all-time tennis Grand Slam singles record for men will be at least 25 by the year 2050. You still have a chance, Scott. Yeah, let's see, 2050, so I got to start winning majors pretty quickly here. Yeah, it's, be, it's, yes. Because there's four per year, uh-huh. so it's the, I got, let's see, 20, 25 years, 26 years. I'm not going to start this year. I'm not ready. Obviously, no. I'm still, you know, I'm just going to no. ease myself into it. So 26 years. So there's, there's 104 and I currently am at, let me check how many I've won so far. <laughs> None. Okay. okay. So I do have time. You have time. Yes. I kind of a lot of, there's 104. I only have to win 20. I only have to win under 25% of them over the next 26 years. Dude, you got this in the bag. Thanks. With yeah. you, with that, with your moral support. You owe me a steak dinner right. after the first one. Just saying. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you you to join us next time on Improve the News.